0: It's the Mark Stein Show.
1: And now, here's Mark. May 6th, 2020. On this day three years ago, we launched the Mark Stein Club, so happy birthday to us. Uh, The launch of our fourth year is somewhat muted by the lockdown, which has kiboshed many of our traditional festivities, such as live music performances, big video interviews, uh, and yours truly twinkling and sparkling with the glossy sheen of three hours of hands-on labour by my devoted hair and makeup ladies. Nevertheless, we will do our best to provide some birthday bonuses in the days ahead. I thank all of you who've joined these last three years, but on this anniversary, I'm especially grateful for those First day founding members who signed up on a Saturday afternoon on May the 6th, 2017. I can't read... Out all the nice comments from renewing members signing up for a fourth year, uh, but let me just mention uh, Jeffrey Williams from Virginia. Jeffrey writes, quote, "I have never been disappointed with my membership. You regularly reinforce the reason I desired becoming a first day founding member. Your insights match reality, and that is where I live. I'm thankful you continue to observe and opine, as it adds support to my belief that there are many people that truly." See the world as it is and must live there as I do. My fellow subscribers and their contributions add to that comfort as well. Job well done, Mr. Stein. Thank you, Geoffrey. Job well done at your end too. Thank you so much for uh, hopping aboard for a fourth year. May 2017 was such a dark time in my life, as many of you know, because... Billionaire Cockwomble carry Cats and his vanity, pseudo-conservative, pseudo-network Blaze TV were suing me. They lost and re-sued me. They re-sued and re-lost. They appealed and re-re-lost. I could go on. He sued me for a combined $35 bucks, but he came up snake-eyes every time because he's such a loser plaintiff and his fancy-pants bi-coastal lawyers, Messrs Brown George Ross, if you're interested, are so hopeless in court... Uh, that it seems cruel to dwell any further on their doomed suits. The other ongoing lawsuit I've been facing is at the District of Columbia Superior Court from Michael E. Mann, the climate ayatollah, who came up with the global warming hockey stick. Uh, That case is now approaching the start of its ninth year and is under its third trial judge, who, unlike her two lethargic predecessors, seems anxious to get this thing over and done. Yesterday she ordered that Mann cough up records of his income from 2007 to now and also any evidence of reputational damage. Uh, I'll be interested to see if he complies because he certainly didn't in the British Columbia courts, but I'll post that maybe tomorrow at Stein Online. Michael Mann is busy right now trying to take down Michael Moore over Moore's new film, Planet of the Humans, uh, which is an expose of the big green boondoggle that man is such an enthusiastic part of. Michael Moore was a guest on my show 27 years ago, and I have no particular desire to encounter him again for at least another 27 years. But I'm with him on this. Man is in the shut-up business, like so many on today's left. So sometimes he comes after a bona fide right-wing nutter like me. Sometimes he goes after a man of the far left like Moore, who doesn't happen to be on board with 100% of the lefty agenda. He's only on board with 99.98% of it or whatever. But that's not enough uh, for the enforcers like Michael E. Mann, who demand total prostration. My favourite example was when Alan Alda, the, the prototypical sensitive new male, offered to give climate scientists lessons in how to present their message in a more effective way to the public, and man exploded. How dare you suggest climate scientists are doing anything wrong? Their messaging is perfect! And immediately clubbed Alan Alda to a pulp, as if he were a seal pup on an ice floe off Labrador. One advantage of being sued by vanity plaintiffs is that you get to size up a lot of judges, many of whom are woefully unimpressive, all over the so-called free world. Those workers deemed non-essential have seen their businesses closed through no fault of their own. Shelley Luther is a member of the non-essential American community in Dallas, Texas, and decided to reopen her hair salon with everyone wearing masks and gloves and all the rest. Unfortunately, the state is currently demanding that the non-essential American community choose between being utterly ruined or becoming lawbreakers. That's grotesque in free societies and demands a little sensitivity from judges. Instead, Dallas County Judge Eric Moyer saw it as an opportunity for showboating.
0: That you owe an apology to the elected officials whom you disrespected were flagrantly ignoring and, in one case, defiling their orders, which we now know obviously apply to you. That you understand that the proper way in which, in an ordered society, to engage concerns which you may have had is to hire a lawyer and advocate for change an exception or an amendment to laws that you find offensive that should publicly state that this is the way that citizens in the state should behave this court will consider the payment of a fine in lieu of the incarceration which you've demonstrated that you have so clearly earned. Is there anything that
1: you would like to say? The present policies of many states and cities are, in fact, legally dubious and unlikely to pass constitutional muster when all this gets litigated, as in America it inevitably will. It's outrageous that Judge Moyer should demand Shelley Luther apologized for breaching a quote-unquote law that didn't exist two months ago and whose existence is a matter of great public policy controversy. He's not enforcing the law. He's demanding, as they do in China and North Korea, that Ms. Luther bow down before it. Here's how she responded.
2: I have to disagree with you, sir, when when you say that I'm selfish because feeding my kids is not selfish i have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids so sir if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed then please go ahead with your decision
0: it is hereby ordered the judge and decree that defendant shelley luther having been found in criminal contempt of this court is hereby remanded to the custody of the sheriff of dallas county as punishment for her violation of this court's order. Defendant Luther shall be confined to a penal facility of the choosing of the Sheriff of Dallas County, where you will remain for a period Uh, seven days. One day for each day that you violated this court's
1: order. Shelley Luther, who decided to go to jail rather than give a public recantation she does not believe in. What a country. What a country. They're releasing rapists and jailing hairstylists. Courts demand the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And judges have no business demanding defendants lie to avoid jail time. What an ass Judge Moyet is. And by the way, even in America. I don't believe that would withstand appeal. The loss of liberty explicitly bargained on grovelling public apology. My friend Conrad Black got a stiffer sentence because he declined to grovel before a pitiful federal judge, one Amy St. Eve. But uh, once convicted, he was always going to do time, and her so-called honour didn't actually offer him a straight-up choice between liberty and loss thereof uh, predicated on his bowing and scraping before Her Judicial Majesty. We might have to start a wanker judge of the week spot. Judge Moyer is a Democrat, by the way, because Texas is a lot bluer uh, than we think it is. Professor Neil Ferguson is the Dr. Fauci of the United Kingdom. He's the Imperial College guy who came up with those models saying COVID-19 would kill half a million people in Britain and two million people in America. He's the big honcho on SAGE, SAGE, the scientific advisory group on emergencies, uh, because all these scientists are sages, right? And he has said that the UK will have to stay in lockdown until September He was saying that in March. That's why they call him Professor Lockdown. Well... September, yeah, we must all make sacrifices, right? Professor Ferguson has now stepped aside from Sage because he's been receiving non-lockdown-compliant visits from his, quote, married lover, a lady called Antonia Statz. From the look of her, her stats appear to be more impressive than his stats, and they don't seem to have been implausibly inflated by a 1,000%. Mrs Statz has a husband, but they're in an open marriage. And God, it's grim for her. You try having an open marriage in a land of lockdown. Open girl, you've been living in an open world. I bet you've never had a lockdown down guy but professor ferguson couldn't live by the rules he's imposed on everyone else after testing positive and quarantining for two weeks he was gagging for a lockdown leg over panting for his pandemic paramour so she's been coming around and doing the horizontal lockdown with him uh and that's why he's been now forced to quit for breaching his own rules he he really shouldn't have caved in He shouldn't have quit. He's essential. You're not. If you're a non-essential worker, by definition, your private parts and what they do are also non-essential. Whereas if, like Professor Ferguson, you're totally essential, your shagtastic sex life is likewise totally essential. That would seem to be... I wouldn't mind betting that if you took that before a (laughs) court... Some judge moy some judge moy type would be happy to sign on to it. And now also from the land where the marriages are open, but the doors are closed.
0: Good evening all. It's your Britwanker Copper of the Day.
1: To date, most of our Britwanker Coppers have been restricting freedom of movement. Uh, That's bad enough, but today's Britwanker coppers are also attempting to restrict freedom of speech. As you may recall, for years I've said that our society is basically bifurcating. If you belong to certain groups, the law does not apply. If you belong to other groups, more and more and more laws apply ever more onerously. Thus, at the US frontier, Latin American drug cartels and ISIS members can simply stroll in while the border guards devote their resources to preventing the entry of kinder eggs and bagpipes. On the day after the Pulse gay nightclub massacre in Florida, I was guest hosting for Rush and said that if you don't have a secure perimeter around the nation, you wind up having to have a secure perimeter around every nightclub and donut shop within the nation. We have now reached the logical end point of that strategy because... Governments feared that it would appear racist to attempt to stop COVID-19 at the border. Across almost all the Western world right now, free-born citizens have a tight security perimeter around their very homes. We're told, on the other hand, that even if you could get out, don't worry about it because there's nowhere to go, because the borders are closed. Well, it's true the borders are pretty much closed for law-abiding citizens. Yet oddly enough, while you have to stay at home because there's a killer virus on the loose... A killer virus is no reason to restrict the movement of so-called refugees and so-called migrants.
3: It's Monday morning, I'm here in Dover, and that's because I'm not going to let this story drop.
1: That's my old comrade Nigel Farage who helped me to a tremendous victory in the monk debate a couple of years back.
3: Lots of press reports over the weekend suggesting I was quite wrong to have gone to East Sussex last week. This is a scandal, it's continuing, so I'm here, it's early morning in Dover, at relative Relatively flat seas, as you can probably see. And just down there gathered are now an ambulance, some border force cars, and about 20 people. And that means that somewhere out there in the channel, what's happening is that our border forces, who are meant to protect our borders, have picked up some illegal migrants who will now be ferried into
1: Dover. Nigel gets the contradiction here. While citizens who have committed no crimes are locked in their homes indefinitely, Non-citizens, economic migrants posing as refugees, uh, to game a corrupt and rotten immigration system. Non-citizens continue to saunter across an unenforced border.
3: And you can now see coming off it there's a boat crammed full of people, and these are all migrants, illegal immigrants, coming into Dover today. About 20 people are there waiting for them. I, I don't know what all of this costs. It must be an absolute fortune. Uh, I've no idea uh, what the health status in terms of the virus is of any of these people are coming in. Uh, the border force is supposed to protect our borders, not be a taxi service for illegal immigrants, and yet that's what the Home Office are telling them to do.
1: Nigel actually lives in Kent. Uh, the county wherein sits Dover. So he was making a journey within his own jurisdiction, within his own county, albeit one of a hundred miles or so round trip. Nevertheless, a couple of hours after he posted that video, your Brit wanker coppers of the day came a knocking on his door. As a law abiding subject of Her Majesty, he is not permitted to travel within his own county while every day thousands of fake refugees from Yemen, Sudan, Somalia, Afghanistan, Libya, you name it, are allowed to travel across the UK border with impunity. Nigel had made an earlier journey to watch another a group of so-called migrants disembarking on England's shores, prompting Sussex police, in this case, to issue a statement. We can confirm that we have received reports of a recent video involving Nigel Farage, which was filmed in East Sussex. We are clear that the public should avoid making non-essential journeys not only for their own safety but for the safety of others. If you are so concerned, Mr Sussex Wanker-Copper, about the safety of others, why are you permitting the arrival every day on Sussex shores of non-citizens whose health status is unknown? Both Nigel's trips were, in fact, essential because he was exposing the lies of law enforcement. That while the... Sussex and Kent police are locking the citizens in their homes, UK immigration authorities are keeping the same old, same old open borders policies in place. That while 90% of scheduled flights in and out of the UK have been cancelled, 100% of the criminal trafficking gangs' boatloads of fake refugees are landing as scheduled Uh, with the so-called UK border force as their doorman. And Sussex police and Kent police aren't in the least bit interested in that. The coppers came a call in on Nigel, not just because he got in his motor car, but because he is exposing the official lies. So the unworthy and contemptible heirs to Sir Robert Peel are now using their new corona powers to, in effect, criminalise political dissent your Brit wanker coppers of the day, the corona Gropen fuhrers of the Kent Police. (laughs) Nigel's and my triumph in the monk debate played a big part in my thinking behind the Stein Club, and so I thank him and the monksters for that. On this third birthday of the club, I'm minded to do as Her Majesty the Queen did the other day and channel Dame Vera Lynn and declare that we will meet again. Okay, enough with that uh, Brit Wanker copper thing. Can we have something a little uh, sophisticated and Mediterranean? Oh, yeah, it doesn't get groovier than that. There's no better way to bust out of the lockdown than with a stateroom on the third annual Mark Stein cruise sailing from Rome on October the 5th this year. Uh, The first two Stein cruises sold out and even with the Corona apocalypse, this one's selling pretty strong. We're going to be cruising the Med on beautiful Holland, America. Brand new ship, extra sponge down for the COVID and we'll be doing live Mark Stein shows with special guests Including my peerless comedic partner and former presidential candidate Michelle Buckman my old boss Conrad Black fresh from his presidential pardon for Mr. Trump Uh, Douglas Murray, best-selling author of The Strange Death of Europe, which he's promised to arrange while we're off the Côte d'Azur so we can watch from our verandas the whole powder keg going up. Lots of other guests, too. We're hitting all the Mediterranean high spots from Rome to Florence to Monte Carlo, Cartagena, Gibraltar, Barcelona. After the lockdown, there is life. After the lockdown, it's time to live it up. For more info, go to marksteincruise.com or telephone from the US or Canada. That's 1-800-707-1634 or from the rest of the world, uh, 1-770-952-1959. That's marksteincruise.com or telephonically 1-770-952-1959 or toll-free from within North America, 800-707-1634.
0: And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week.
1: As long-time Stein Club members know, when we turned one year old, I hosted a cavalcade of number one hits, with me talking to Andy Williams, Bananarama, Artie Shaw, Lulu and other artists who've had number one records. And then when we turned two years old, I hosted a cavalcade of number two hits, with me talking to Julio Iglesias, Chuck Berry, Men at Work, and other artists who've had number two records. And I suggested that this format was going to seem totally desperate by the time we reach the club's 38th birthday. In fact, it's headed south well before that because much of the material uh, comes from my uh, archive, from my disc jockey and BBC days, and is housed in my currently locked down offices on reel-to-reel tape, and i got nothing to play that stuff on here deep in the cave of my present isolation. So in lieu of our one-hour annual special, we're going to do our number three hits, piecemeal according to what's to hand and this one is
2: Don't know much about history Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world
1: this is That's how it started. A song written by Lou Adler and Herb Alpert. That's uh, Herb Alpert as in the Tijuana Brass and this guy's in love with you. And Lou Adler, who's mainly been a record producer of Carole King, The Mamas and Papas, Cheech and Chong. But they wrote that song... And Sam Cooke made a few lyrical amendments and cut a record of it, and it did okay Number 12 in America in 1960, which would qualify it for our Stein Club birthday show in 2029, and number 27 in Britain, which would qualify it for our Stein Club birthday show in 2044. But then fate intervened. On the evening of December 11th, 1964, at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, Sam Cook came crashing through into the reception office, uh, purportedly naked, save for a sports coat and a single shoe, and was shot in supposed self defense by the motel manager, Bertha Franklin. Cook is said to have responded. Lady, you shot me in a puzzled tone and lunged at her. She hit him over the head with a broom, and he fell to the floor and died. A few weeks later in London, Herman's Hermits went into the studio and recorded this song in tribute to Sam Cooke, although it's uh, comparatively perky and up tempo and not in the least bit mournful kind of arrangement. Like almost everything else the band did, they did it in one take, because that's the way their producer, Mickey, most liked it. I'm proud to say we have several Grammy-winning, Tony-winning, Oscar-winning, number one singers and songwriters and musicians in the Mark Stein Club, and among their number is Herman of the Hermits himself, Peter Noon. Here's what Peter told me about their sole, singular, one-take-take on this song. You never did a second take of that? that never. Never? Lots of times we didn't. We often wanted to do. We've got, like, Wonderful World, where yeah.
2: the drummer never, ever catches up to us because Jimmy Page is the guitar player. Another Led Zeppelin guy is the guitar player, and he goes, let's let's cut the intro in off." You know, so you go... <laughs> I can't remember the intro now. Uh, How's the intro go? Uh, oh, oh, yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, da 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 And let's not do it twice, it's boring. <laughs> so, so, got, well, so But the drummer doesn't get that memo. Right. So, da-da-da-da, and yeah. he's, he's and waiting he's still, for it.
1: Uh, wait and and he catches
2: up sometime after the bridge. Yeah. And you can hear on the record. But Mickey said, no, it's got all this energy, because the spirit, of the, the enthusiasm of the records is captured by getting it all in one go. Were Cheap. He, Don't know much about history
1: number seven in the UK, number four in the US, but qualifying for our third birthday observances by hitting number three in New Zealand, Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits. Uh, this next verse, which happens to be my favourite, but which I don't believe had actually been written at the time Herman's Hermits made their record in 1965. But come 1978, when Art Garfunkel went into the studio with Paul Simon and James Taylor uh, for a very uh, leisurely take on this song, these words mysteriously appeared. Don't
2: know much about the- And I turn the pages. Don't know nothing about no right.
1: James Taylor actually chipped in that last verse because it has a touch of either or both men about it. Well if ever concert singers, musicians, backing vocalists crammed onto a stage, audience members in a standing room only auditorium, if ever such events are permitted to recur again I will try to talk Peter Noon into singing that verse. Number three in New Zealand, and thus just perfect for our third birthday show. I think uh, Herman's Hermit's worst ever chart performance was The Most Beautiful Thing in My Life, which on the Billboard chart in 1968 got to number 131. And we promise to do that on our 131st birthday Stein Club show in the year 2148. What a wonderful world, even in a lockdown. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Jeremy Frankel writes from New Jersey to ask if we can add the show to Apple Podcasts. Short answer, no. Long answer, I'll tell you why in a minute. Intermediate answer, I was joking at the time of the 100th anniversary of Talking Pictures a couple of years back that if Al Jolson came along now and said, Oh, mammy, listen to me, you ain't heard nothing, yet, mammy. People would say, that's all very well, but the distribution system's a bit inconvenient, so could you come round and sing it to me in my bathtub? That goes double when everybody's complaining that they're stuck at home and twiddling their thumbs. But apparently it's still too burdensome to make two clicks instead of one, or even three clicks instead of one. Uh, Convenience is killing us. Getting all our crappy these-colors-don't-run t-shirts made in China is conveniency unto death. But then again, it's hard to find American-made t-shirts. Getting all our meat chopped up by sweaty, jam-packed, low-wage third-world workers is conveniency unto death. But then again, it's hard to find a chicken or a cow that's been chopped up by actual Americans. Outsourcing the entirety of human knowledge to a handful of woke billionaires is likewise conveniency unto death. But in this case, all you've got to do is take that little itty bitty finger and make an extra click or two. And that's really not a lot to ask, is it? Even for a civilization sleepwalking off the cliff. Apple, Facebook... Google, YouTube, Twitter are monopoly publishers masquerading as a distribution platform. More to the point, from a conservative perspective, they're monopoly publishers who won't stand by their authors. I know a bit about that. I was at a book signing a couple of years back for my tome about the aforementioned Michael E. Mann, uh, quote, a disgrace to the profession, the world's scientists in their own words on Michael E. Mann, his hockey stick, and their damage to science, Volume 1. And I looked up from signing a book to find that the next in line was a sometime publisher of mine. He said, Why didn't you give us this book? I decided um, effectively to self-publish it. And the reason I did so was because I didn't trust his board to stand by the book in the event man decided to sue. Uh, so I did it myself. And it was a big bestseller on the environmental hit parade, which I didn't even know existed. But it outsold his book, for example. Uh, the woke billionaire cartel openly advertise that if you incline right, they won't stand by you. They tell you up front. Many of those woke billionaires are already, in effect, Chinese subsidiaries. Facebook's business model is uh, that you're both the product and the customer. And in that case, China, with four times the population, is a more valuable market than America. So censorship tools these companies have fine-tuned at the behest of Chairman Xi, are now being applied to the... uh, comparatively minor market of the United States and Europe and so on. Facebook, for example, marks any take on the origins of the coronavirus that contradicts China and the WHO as fake news. The WHO, in other words, uh, has been elevated by Facebook to the status of a global governing body. Why is it in any conservative's interest to create more and more content Mortgage to this global cartel. It's one thing to give your enemies a monopoly on t-shirts It's another to give them a monopoly on thoughts and ideas This is yet more short-sighted toss pottery From the utterly useless conservative ink uh, that has been failing America uh, since Ronald Reagan left office all that said As a small third birthday gift to Stein Club members, we are making some of our audio content available in a slightly more convenient way for your telephones and motor vehicles. I would explain if I understood a word of it, uh, but instead we put a link to it on the very Stein online page you're looking at right now. And we hope you enjoy it. We hope it makes it more convenient uh, for some of you. But as for Apple... Facebook, all that stuff. In the old days, the Soviet Union actually had to break into your flat and bust up the shortwave radio under your bed that you were listening to the BBC World Service on. It never occurred to them that thought control is so much easier if you just leave it to Facebook, Twitter and YouTube.
0: Mark Stein's Last Call.
1: What's the connection between Carrie Grant...
3: You're absolutely right. Give me a woman who knows her own mind.
2: No one gives you a woman like that. You have to capture
3: her. Any particular method?
2: Yes, but it's no good unless you discover it yourself.
1: ...and Danny Kay. The pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle, the chalice... The palace has the brew that is true! ...and the Prince of Wales. New Delhi, the seat of the government of India.
2: Old ways, old methods in the subcontinent persist side by side with
1: the new. India informally, Prince Charles arrives at Palam Airport, accompanying the prince, Lord Louis Mountbatten of Burma. Lord Louis, as India's last viceroy, presided over the transfer of power from the British Raj to the people of India. Well, one connection between the prince and all that Hollywood royalty, from Gregory Peck to Alfred Hitchcock, is that when they went to India, they invariably found themselves sitting at dinner next to Gulshan Ewing. Through the 60s, 70s and 80s, Mrs Ewing was the doyen of Indian media, not just because she was the editor of two of the country's biggest magazines, uh, first Eve's Weekly and then Star and Style, but because the glamorous people liked her. And that made her glamorous in her own right. She taught Danny Kaye how to wear a sari, because apparently he needed to know. For a journalist in India, it was a charmed life. Indira Gandhi gave her the longest interview she ever gave to anyone, and V.S. and Paul put her in a book. I met her once at a big do in London in the early 90s and she seemed to know not only everyone in the room but also anyone whose name came up in conversation. I wasn't quite sure who she was or why the stars sought her out so the next day I asked around and realised she belonged to a select group of people I've always had a sneaking admiration for. The, the person who's third from the left in a group photograph of A-list celebrities. Say... Roger Moore, Ava Gardner, Lord Mountbatten, and Gulshan Ewing. The person the famous people like. Old Hollywood faded, and new Bollywood arose, and India's homemade stars still sought out the petite Parsi from Bombay, resplendent in chiffon and pearls. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 92, Gulshan Ewing. That's one Israeli <laughs> rabbi honoring at his funeral another Israeli rabbi. What's unusual is that the living rabbi is alive because of a life-saving kidney donation arranged by the deceased rabbi. Yeshayahu hebo was the recipient of a donor kidney some years back and after his own experience decided to form an organization, The Gift of Life, to encourage kidney donation and eliminate not just the medical bureaucracy's delays, but the dread and traumatizing waiting list for a kidney itself. The Gift of Life has been hugely successful, which is why both major party leaders in the uh, new coalition were among those paying tribute to Rabbi Heber, He was a middle-aged man, but he looked older than his years, not just because of his health issues, but because two years ago a vindictive police investigation into so-called organ trafficking that was dropped without charge stole 12 months of what would prove to be a foreshortened life. As one of our Israeli Stein Club members, Laura Klut, remarks, no good deed goes unpunished. Here
0: his wife Rachel mourns her husband. As
1: Rachel Heber pledges there, the work of her husband will survive him.
0: And as she
1: did during that year-long meritless investigation, she will step into his place and bear his burden. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 55, a life-saving rabbi, Yeshayahu Heba.
2: Want to get into the war? Monuments, Men. I'm to put a team together and do our best to protect buildings, bridges and art before the Nazis destroy everything. How many men? Six. Jesus. Well, with you, at seven. That's much better. So you want to go into a war zone with some architects and artists and tell our boys what they can and cannot. Blow up. That's
1: right. That's George Clooney and Brad Pitt in the 2014 film The Monuments Men. It wasn't a great film, but it was a useful reminder of one of the many curiously specialized departments of the Allied war effort, a group of men and women from 14 nations whose job was to stop the Germans stealing great art or destroying great monuments of occupied countries and also to stop the Allies from more accidentally destroying the stuff, too. The film was based on a book by Robert M. Edsor. Uh, the story, from my view, was the good guys. Who were these men and women?
0: One of those women it's is Matiko sure. Huthwaite. She worked for the Lieutenant Commander George Stout, played by George Clooney. Aren't you a for that? Yes.
2: I think George was handsomer. (laughs) Huthwaite was a typist.
1: Motoko Fujishiro Huthwaite was an unusual member of the Monuments Men team. Her father had been interned by the Roosevelt administration and the rest of the family fled back to Japan. There were surely moments in those turbulent years when she had mixed feelings about America, but she loved the great civilizational inheritance of paintings and sculpture And she did her part to help save a lot of it. Five years ago, the few surviving members of the Monuments Men were told that they were to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. I was absolutely flabbergasted. It was the usual unsatisfying congressional ceremony all the politicians felt they needed to read out long speeches written by staffers which took up almost all of the one-hour event leaving five minutes for the people they were supposedly there to honor but motoko fujishiro huthwaite did have the satisfaction of being name-checked during nancy pelosi's address
0: with the last living monument's men among us and women We stand in the presence of greatness. Sergeant Harry Etlinger will be hearing from you. Private First Class Richard Barancik, thank you and welcome. Mutoko Futishiro Huthwate, thank you, ma'am. And Lieutenant Bernard Taper of Berkeley and my city of San Francisco.
1: Mrs. Pelosi may not know much about art, but she knows what she likes, the sound of her own voice. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 92, a woman among the Monuments Men, Motoko Fujishiro Huthwaite. That's it for this Mark Stein Club birthday edition of our show. On this quarantine third anniversary, I'm, as always, so grateful to all our first-day founding members, beginning with a gentleman from small-town Idaho who signed up shortly after midday Pacific time on May the 6th 2017, and kicked off an avalanche of subscribers. I was stunned by your enthusiasm and even more surprised as it grew in the ensuing weeks and months. My only regret is that we didn't do this a decade and a half ago. And I hope to thank many of you personally on this October's cruise. We're thrilled by all the renewals, but we also cherish our new members, of recent weeks, from all over the map, from St. Louis to the Solomon Islands, and Glen Maggie, Mullingar, Port Vila, almost every corner of the globe where as ubiquitous as COVID-19, if you'll pardon the expression. If you're not a member, do give it some thought, prowl around, stein online, check out our Tales for Our Time homepage, and our video poetry homepage, and some of the rest of it, and see if any of it appeals. If not, No worries, as my Aussie chums say. Stay safe, stay free, and here's to the next year.
0: Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.